My text is found in verse 17 of 2 Kings chapter 6. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha had the blessing of God in a very remarkable way. He was the successor of Elijah and he prayed at the time when Elijah was taken up into heaven that he might have a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. God abundantly answered. Interestingly, A.W. Pink in his commentary on the life of Elisha tells us that twice as many miracles were performed by Elisha as were performed by Elijah. Uh, I don't know which you would consider the greater prophet. In my mind, I think Elijah is the greater prophet, but more miracles were performed by Elisha. Here we find him uh, knowing what the king of, of Syria uh, was going to do. The king of Syria was going to attack the nation of Israel, and he had his camp at different places, and every time when he was planning an attack, Elisha sent word to the king of Israel saying, don't go near there because that's the place where you're going to come under attack. The king of Syria became very distressed about this for he thought there was a spy in the camp that was passing on word uh, to the king of Israel. And he said, which, which of you, which man here is responsible? And someone who seemed to have an insight into the situation said, no, there's no spy in the camp. There's no traitor here. But Elisha, the prophet, he tells uh, to the king of Israel the very things that are secret to you, the things that you're speaking in your bedchamber. When all the doors are closed and no ear can hear, Elisha knows what you're thinking, knows what you're planning, and he is the man who is telling the king of Israel where your camp is to be found. Well, uh, the king of Syria said, I want you to go out and I want you to capture him. They found him in a place called Dothan and they surrounded Elisha. At that time, Elisha had a young man as his servant. Previously, he had Gehazi, uh, who was a grasping individual and eventually who was afflicted with leprosy. Now there's a young man in the service of Elisha. And he looks around, and what does he discover? Well, the Syrian army has surrounded Elisha. And he thinks, how are we ever to escape? Two of us against probably tens of thousands of Syrian soldiers. And he's asking the question, alas, my master, what shall we do? How are we ever going to escape? And Elisha prays to God uh, after telling him that there's more with us than they have on their side. Very strange statement. But don't we make a similar statement when we say that one with God is a majority? Elisha sees it that way. There are more with us than there are with them. And then he does something more. He prays and he speaks to the Lord and he says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. We are told the result was 
the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, uh, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha was being protected, not simply by horses and chariots, but by the angels. And that is the common view of the commentators, uh, that uh, these represent the angelic host, the angels of God surrounding Elisha and surrounding his young servant. And I remember that one angel smote the Assyrian army on one occasion and 180,000 soldiers were smitten and died. So one angel can do that. Here is Elisha. He's surrounded by the angelic host. What I want us to think about in our service today is this prayer of Elisha. Lord, he says, I pray thee, open the young man's eyes or open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. I want us to think about the fact that many people are blind to the invisible world, to the real world. They cannot see the plight that they are in. They cannot see the hand of God, that it is mighty. And they cannot see their need of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be their Savior. There may be someone here, maybe more than one, and you're not saved. And you're blinded. And you need to have your eyes opened. What are you blind to? Well, you're blind to your sin. I know that people will admit, well, I'm a sinner. But they don't really grasp the reality or the awfulness of their sinfulness. We think that we're quite decent, quite respectable, as good as the next person. We pay our way through life and we're good neighbors. And we're not bad in that sense. And yet the word of God makes it abundantly clear that we are sinners. And something else that we're blind to in connection with this is the enormity of sin. We dismiss sin. It's just a little sin. We talk about white lies. As if you could tell a lie and say it's white. How could a lie be white? That which is stained and sullied and polluted. How can it be a white lie? That's what we say. We excuse ourselves. We think we are better than we are, as good as the next person. And we don't realize that we are sinful. When God draws near and our eyes are opened, it's a different story. Even the great man Job, who was the greatest man and the most godly man in the world, he failed when he was put under tremendous pressure. He didn't fail generally, but he failed in some particulars. When the Lord drew near to him, he, he spoke of his shame. And God showed him his greatness. And what did Job say? He said, what shall I say? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. You know, sometimes you made a blunder. You said something out of turn and you put your hand over your mouth and say, why did I say that? Why did I speak in that way? Well, Job says, I'm not going to answer you, Lord. I will lay my hand on my mouth. I'll, I'll silence myself. No self-defense. And then he says, behold, I am vile. Now, if Job was vile, 
And that's how he saw himself in the presence of God. How vile are you and I? Vile. Job, two chapters later, is recorded as saying, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself. I, I feel disgusted with myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. That's how mourners repented, or at least how they expressed sorrow. In dust and ashes. I've lost a loved one. I'm down, thoroughly down. Well, that's how Job felt when he saw what he was really like. Men and women, generally, across the face of the earth. And you and I, in our unsaved days, we never saw what we were really like until God opened our eyes. And instead of making excuses for ourselves and patting ourselves on the back, we felt convicted and troubled. And we cried to God to have mercy upon us, to save us from our sins. And may I say this, the godliest people think the least about themselves. I hardly need to tell you about what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, where he expresses his disgust with himself. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He sees himself as he is by nature. And he sees the struggle that's taking place between the old nature and the new nature. And he says, I'm wretched. I'm wretched. Who can deliver me? And he knows that only Christ is able to do that. So the unsaved person doesn't see his sinfulness or her sinfulness. But there's something else that unsaved people do not see. They do not see their danger. There is danger just ahead. You will find it in different places in the Bible. I was thinking of that time when there was a civil war inside the nation of Israel. It was caused by the Benjamites. That tribe descended from Benjamin. The Benjamites defended people who were guilty of, of very horrible sin. Don't want to go into the sin, but they were guilty. A group of people in the nation guilty of the most horrible sin. And the rest of the tribes, the other 11 tribes said, hand over those men because they deserve to be put to death. The Benjamites defended them, took up arms against the rest of the nation and for some time in two successive battles they were successful, destroying tens of thousands, 40,000 from the other tribes. Even though they were the, one of the very smallest tribes, they were very skillful in warfare. There came a third battle. Children of Israel cried to God, will we go out against Benjamin again? Will we fight against him? God said, yes, and this time I'll deliver them into your hands. They had some 25,000, I think it was 600 soldiers, and they were cut right down. And their most skillful soldiers, they were wiped out. And it seemed as if the whole tribe had been wiped out. Only 600 men left in the tribe. Cut down. And one of the things that we find in the book of Judges chapter 20 was that when it came to the last battle, the Benjamites thought they were going to triumph 
And it looked as if they were succeeding. But the Bible says they didn't realize that trouble or danger was near. Just round the corner was death and disaster. And they didn't see it. You see the same thing in the ancient world before the flood. They were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Until the flood came and swept them all away. No danger. No danger. No flood. No rain. And suddenly the deluge came. And the ancient world with the exception of eight people was wiped out. Same happened in the time of Lot. His sons-in-law, when he warned them, they just laughed at him. Bible says he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. They had no idea that fire and brimstone were about to fall from heaven. So they were following in the footsteps of those before the flood, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, carrying on, thinking tomorrow will be as this day. And then came the judgment of God. And I'm saying to you, unsaved people have no idea. And many times we don't grasp it either. But unsaved people have no idea how close disaster is. How close danger is. We, we speak about being just a heartbeat from eternity. Unsaved people, even saved people, are just a heartbeat from eternity. Very quickly, we may face God and stand before him, and if not saved, be utterly condemned. Depart, God will say. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. So I, I, I'm trying to get this point across to you. Many people cannot see. They cannot see their sin. They cannot see their danger. And I, you might say, well, if they're blind, they're excusable. But they're not excusable. God couldn't condemn the inexcusable. But, excuse me, God can condemn those who are excusable. We find in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, about him whose working is after the working of Satan, or whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because, now, why do people perish? They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And it says, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. And this is the key expression, I believe. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why do people not see? Why do they not see how sinful they are? And how holy God is? And how just he is? How do they not see their danger? Why do they not see that disaster is just around the corner? They have pleasure. In unrighteousness. You say to an unsaved person about being saved, and many of them will say, I don't want to be saved. I'm happy the way I am. I don't want to give this up for something that's uncertain. You talk about being saved. You talk about the blood of Christ. You talk about the sacrifice of Calvary. Those things don't really mean anything to me. What is real to me is this world. Getting enough to get by, 
getting more money, getting a nice home, getting a nice car, going on fine holidays. And forget about that. It's so uncertain. I don't know if you're speaking the truth or not. Many people find fault with the Bible. They say there's lots of mistakes in the Bible. And so they, they push it to the one side and they drink in all the pleasures of sin. And they forget that God is real. And the result is, if they die unsaved, immediately, immediately, like the rich man in Luke chapter 16, they open their eyes in hell being in torments. But then I, I want to extend this a little bit further. And I want to say that many of God's people, not totally blind because they're saved, are what we might call partially blind. Over in Second Peter chapter 2, uh, we are exhorted to add to our faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, to temperance, patience, uh, to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. And it says, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the invitation or the exhortation for God's people is to go forward, to grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens if we don't grow in grace? What happens if we come to a standstill and become worldly? Well, the word of God tells us. It says, he that lacketh these things is blind, blind, and cannot see afar off. That myopia, that short-sightedness. Christians can become myopic, can't see very far. They become like the worldling. They become wrapped up in this life. And the things of this life, they, they're blinded by the things of the world. They cannot see afar off. And then the crucial statement, and it says that they have forgotten. Uh, the man that's like that, he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Now, if you have forgotten that you were purged and you're wrapped up in this world, the first thing that you will lose is your assurance of salvation. You say, am I really a child of God? Was that experience a true experience or was it a false profession that I made? And how miserable you will be. You'll be even more miserable in this life than an unsaved person. The unsaved person never had the experience of being born again. If you're saved and you're not going on, you've had the experience so you're spoiled for this world. Even though you're, you're taking as much as you can from it, you're spoiled for it. And then you've no assurance. No assurance that your sins were really cleansed, that you're really born again of the Spirit of God. And so there's that blindness. And the Apostle Peter in Second Peter 2 says that there's that blindness. He hath forgotten uh, and uh, he's blinded. Uh, by this worldliness that has crept over him or her. And so, there's blindness for the unsaved. There's blindness for the person that's not going on with the Lord. And then, of course, in many things, even the very best of people have a form of blindness. It's as if there's cataracts over 
our eyes are over our spiritual eyes. We run into trouble with sorrow, with bereavement, and we look at all the problems of this world, and we say, how am I ever going to cope? How am I ever going to get through? This is an unexpected development. Problem in the family. Problem with my health. Problem with someone in the family's health. A problem in the church. A failure maybe in our lives. And we say, how am I ever going to get through? How am I ever going to cope? Just like this young man here. The servant of Elisha. What does he see? He sees the enemy surrounding Elisha. And what does he say? Alas, my master. Alas, how shall we do? How are we going to survive? Because the Syrian host will cut us to pieces. That's the way sometimes we feel. There are times in the Christian life when we hit rock bottom. I did a week of meetings in Port Hope and then I did the same week of meetings. Preachers do repeat their messages in Corrigari. And one of the messages I preached on was the child of God hitting rock bottom. And the man I used was Elisha's predecessor, Elijah. Take away my life, he says to the Lord, for I am not better than my father's. He wants to die. He can see no future. It seems as if everything's a failure. And there are times when you and I, who are saved, we hit rock bottom. And we say, where do I go from here? What's going to happen to me? You can lose your assurance. You can lose your peace. You confront problems. You confront the thought of death. And, and you're thinking, am I ready for this? Am I ready? I've been such a failure in my life. How am I going to die? How can I be transported from being such a failure here into the glory and the joy and the everlasting bliss of heaven? We need our eyes opened to be drawn to the Savior. And that leads me to a second thought here. Elisha prayed for the young man. We are told, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And that presses upon me and upon you a duty. A duty to pray for those who are distressed, those who are blind, to pray for the unsaved that they might see. Don't you feel distress at times when you speak to an unsaved person, particularly one inside your family circle? And you say to that person, you need to be saved. And they just throw it all back at you. Maybe they say, I know plenty of people who say they're saved and they're the only hypocrites. And if that's the kind of salvation you're talking about, I don't want it. And you feel distressed. They, they don't want to be saved. And you want to see them saved. Or there's Christians and they're, they're not going on and you're trying to encourage them to go on. Or there's Christians that come to you for counsel and you try to advise them and you can hardly lift them from that lowest point that they've sunk to in their spirits. What do you do? Well, you do what Elijah did, or Elisha rather did. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. I pray thee, open his eyes. You can see intensity in this. 
There is a crisis in the life of the young man. And Elisha, he cares for the young man. He's been faithful to him. Now he wants the the distress to be lifted from the young man's mind. And he prays. Do you pray? Do you pray for the unsaved? Do you pray that God will touch them? That God will speak to them? That God will save them? That they might experience what you've experienced, the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, assurance of heaven, a future beyond this life that we now live. Yes, Elisha prays with intensity. And I want you and I want myself to pray with intensity for those who are not saved. To pray with intensity for those who are not going on who are at a standstill. They're not adding to faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, temperance, and so on. They lack these things. They're blind. They cannot see far off. They've forgotten that they were purged from their old sins, and they have no assurance of salvation. That's what we want them to have. That assurance, that peace, that joy. What a difference it makes to the church when God's people come in and they're bubbling over with joy. And they're keen to come to the services. I often think back to the time when I started to attend our church in Lisbelaw. Uh, that now is our Enniskillen congregation. But in Lisbelaw, I remember coming home one time from a prayer meeting. It was a late night prayer meeting, a men's late night prayer meeting. And I remember parking my car and looking up, cold, frosty night, and all the stars uh, were shining brightly. And I remember thinking, one day, one day, I'll be above those stars. How wonderful that is, that experience, that nearness of the Lord. Wouldn't it be glorious if the people of God came into church, to the prayer meeting, to the times of prayer before the morning and evening service, bubbling over with anticipation, with longing and excitement for the blessing of God to come down. We need that intensity in prayer. We need that intensity in our own lives to lift us above the gloom of our present surroundings and to enable us to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in his love, to rejoice in his forgiveness and to rejoice in anticipation of the heaven that lies before us. Now, the next thing that I want us to see in this text, and I know my time is running away rapidly. The next thing I want to see is this. The Lord answered Elisha's prayer. We're told Elisha prayed, and he said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. What a difference. Now has come over the young man. He looks with with new eyes upon the scene. Instead of seeing the Syrian host and the threat from the Syrian host, he sees the angelic host surrounding himself and Elisha and guaranteeing their safety, guaranteeing that the Syrians will not capture them and will not destroy them. Doesn't the Bible say in Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him And delivereth them. In ancient times, when the tribes were pitching tent, 
the chief's tent was put down first. And then the members of the tribe, they pitched their tents at a respectable distance to give freedom to the chief. At a respectable distance, they surrounded the chief. And if an enemy attacked, the safest place was the chief's tent. Bible says, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. When you're walking with God and prayer is being answered for you, you feel that measure of safety, that measure of peace. You, you, you could face, in a sense, the den of lions as Daniel did. You say, I'll not fear. I'll not fear. The Lord is my helper. He has promised I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. In Hebrews 13, I'll not fear what man shall do unto me. Many martyrs went to the stake, singing the praises of the Lord, praying to the Lord, and praying for their tormentors. Yes, they had no fear. They had great joy in death, even horrible death of suffering. They went forward with thanksgiving to God. Some said, well, this morning I supped on earth. This evening I'll sup with my Savior in heaven. Magnificent, glorious. Because when we pray earnestly and fervently and wholeheartedly, the Lord answers prayer. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, behold, there were horses of fire and chariots of fire round about Elisha. He saw they were protected and he rejoiced he rejoiced in the deliverance that God had given see all those problems that we face the, the times when we're right down and can go no lower and have hit our lowest point if the Lord comes in if the Lord comes in the Lord will deliver the Lord will lift us above the problems he lift us Above the fears, he'll give us peace. He'll give us joy. The Lord can do it. Didn't the Lord heal a man who was born blind? Nobody held out any hope for that man. But the Lord was able to heal him and to give that man sight. And it astonished all those who saw him. And think of all the miracles Christ performed. Just an indication, a little sample, a little sample of what the Lord can do. On my journey, I was telling you that uh, I was taken on a very scenic route, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I saw Lakeland Dairies. I think I've got the right name of it. And I thought I'd love to see around that place. My father was manager of a small creamery in County Fermanagh. This one looked a, a monster in comparison. And I thought I would love to see around uh, that creamery. Uh, how magnificent uh, it would be uh, to see that uh, and to see uh, the things that I saw on a much, much smaller scale in my youth. Well, one of the things they did in the creamery, sometimes I had to mark the milk helping out when I was at school. The girl in the laboratory, she came with a little sampler and she tested the milk and she came with that little sampler and she checked, and she could tell if that milk was watered. She could tell the butterfat content, uh, and she could tell all about that milk. 
uh, just with a little sample. Will you see the miracles that are in the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels? They're just a sample of hundreds, perhaps thousands more. That's what the Lord can do. He, he can move. He, he can save multitudes in one service. He can transform a community when he comes down and he can send revival. How glorious, how great, how mighty is God. All the gloom that we feel today, he can lift it and he can give us joy and peace in believing. One more thought. Only he can do it. Only the Lord can do it. Nobody else can do it. If I take you again to that blind man, the Jews didn't like the idea that Jesus, whom they detested, was being given credit for giving sight to that man. And they wrangled with his parents, and then they turned to him, and, and they kept questioning him. And, and how did he do it? And eventually he got fed up with them, and he said, will you also become his disciples? You know, since the beginning of the world, he says, it has never been heard that someone opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he says, he could do nothing. Nobody else, you see, nobody else could have opened that man's eyes. Nobody else. But Jesus could do it. And Jesus did do it. Nobody else can save but Jesus Christ. Nobody else can lift the gloom from our spirits. Nobody else can restore the backslider. Only Jesus Christ working by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need him. How we need him. And how we need to pray the way that Elisha prayed. Lord, I pray thee, he says, open the eyes. Open his eyes that he may see. And it says, and the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and the whole situation took on a completely new aspect. Transformed. God can do it. God can do it. Let's trust him. Let's seek him. If you're not saved, call upon his name. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that thou would apply thy truth to every heart. We realize, Lord, how blind we are when left to ourselves. But we thank you that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to enlighten us, able to give us peace, able to give us victory. And Lord, we thank you that at the moment of death, he's able to transport us, we might say in a split second, into his presence to see his face, to see the beauty of the Saviour, to see his glory, his majesty, his power and his greatness and to worship him and to be with him, serving him, serving him with gladness and singleness of heart throughout eternity. Dismiss us now in thy fear and with thy love and blessing. Spread thy covering wings around us till all our wanderings cease and at our Father's blessed abode thy saints arrive in peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.